I think our passage this evening presents us with uh, a question which is often asked by children various ages, but I can say, therefore, your ages. Uh, a question, the answer, answer to which is very similar to that being posed. The question is, why? Do you ever ask the question, why, kids, grown-ups? Um, you're told to do something, and you ask, why? And then your parents will give a, an answer they think is satisfactory, and you come back with another question, why? And then they go a little bit further and a little bit deeper, and then you say, why, and why, and why, and why? And can I let you in on a secret, kids? When you do that, it's really annoying. It is really annoying. I've got a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old, and the why questions, oh, there's no end to them. But, by the same token, knowing why is really important, isn't it? It's nice when children, or adults even, <laughs> just listen and do what they to they're told. But we need, more often than not in life, to really understand why certain things are important, why certain things need to be done, why certain things are the way they are, so that we can do them in the right way. Can I give you an example from our household? Each and every day, I have to have this struggle, this argument, this fight with my children about brushing their teeth in the morning. Do any of you refuse to brush your teeth? Do any of you think to yourselves, I don't need to brush my teeth today, I did it yesterday. Why or oh why or oh why do we have to brush our teeth for two minutes every single morning before we go to school, Daddy? And I give answers, but they never really listen. But ultimately, it would be important, it would be good if my kids understood why it was so important. It would mean that I wouldn't have to tell them and argue with them every day. It would mean that whether I was there with a stopwatch, literally timing them, watching over them, they might do it. Because, did you know this, if you don't brush your teeth, you get cavities which hurt, you get gummick, you get toothic, it's horrible. You also get smelly breath and you scare people away. <laughs> so it's really important to brush your teeth and to know why, but just to kind of crack on and do it. And today's passage, I think, gives us just this massive, huge why. Why is that? Why does that happen? And the answer, weirdly, is also a why. The question, the big why, is why does Jesus hide himself from his two friends? Why does Jesus hide himself from his two followers? Chapter 13, that very day, it's Easter Sunday. Jesus has died, he's been buried, he's risen again. At the start of Luke chapter 4, we've read about the women who have gone to the tomb. First opportunity to prepare Jesus' body properly with spices to, to pay their last respects, as it were. They found the stone ro rolled away. They found the tomb empty. They've been told by these two dazzling men, who they understand to be angels, that Jesus isn't there because he's alive. That same very day that all that is happening, these two followers, these two friends of Jesus, they're on their way out of Jerusalem. They're heading to a place called Emmaus, and as they go, they're chatting. They're chatting about the things that had happened. They're chatting about, probably, how Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey to fanfare. They're chatting about how he'd um, come head to head with the, the teachers, the scribes, the elders, how they discussed and debated in the temple. They chatted about that final 
um, Passover meal that they'd shared and, and how Jesus had directed them. They chatted about perhaps how they'd gone to the Garden of Gethsemane and how Jesus had been betrayed. They chatted about how Jesus had been taken from one court to the next, that no charge would stick to him, and yet he was found guilty or at least sentenced as a guilty man and sent to his death. They chatted about how he had died. They chatted about how they'd had to stay at home for the whole Sabbath day. They chatted about the nonsense report that the women had brought them and what on earth to make of it. They chatted about these things. And it says that as they spoke about these things, Jesus himself drew near and went to them. Verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. You know, one of the things that we as Christians, that I as a minister, that I hope uh, as a church, you would be desperate to share with people is the good news that Jesus is alive, that the body was missing, that the tomb was empty, not because someone had stolen it, or because Jesus had faked his own death or anything like that, but because he had really died and he was really risen to life. So you get to a passage like this, a story like this, when these sad, sad friends, these sad disciples and followers of Jesus are heading away from Jerusalem, perhaps fleeing out of fear, and you've got to ask the question, why on earth would Jesus hide himself? Surely the thing that they need to know more than anything is that what the women are speaking about, what Simon has gone and also confirmed, is, is the good news that Jesus has risen from the dead, that he's alive. And there's no re- easier way for Jesus to share that information with them than to simply come alongside and say, hello, it's me, your old pal. The one that you've spent however many years traveling with. Don't believe me? Here's the holes in my hands. Here's the hole in my side. He who was dead is now alive again, and I am that one. So why on earth does Jesus hide himself from these followers? Well, it's because they needed to know for themselves a bigger why. They needed to see and understand why it was that Jesus had died and risen from the dead. He asks them what they've been talking about, rather cheekily. He knows exactly what's been going on, and he's probably overheard them. Um, But this is what they pass back. This is what they tell him. These are the things that that, that are on our minds, on our hearts, about this Jesus of Nazareth. And if you go through with them and you rehearse the things that they say, they get everything right, don't they? That he was a prophet, mighty in both deed and word before God and the people. They get the facts right that he was um, opposed by the rulers, condemned by them to death, and crucified. They share this hope, which we might scoff at, but it's a really good biblical hope, isn't it? The hope that he would redeem Israel, that he would put Israel back up on her pedestal, that God's special people would be set free, that God's special people would be released to do what they're called to do by God. They believe and they speak about the fact that it's been three days and now there's this report that the tomb is empty. All the sort of the facts that they share are good, the facts that they share are right and proper. But Jesus understands that they need to understand why all these things have been going on, why he died and why he rose to life again. See, they've got this grand scheme of things. 
They've got this grand vision of who the, the Messiah was, who Jesus as the Messiah was, and what that meant that he was going to do. But Jesus listens to their grand scheme, and he tells them that it isn't nearly grand enough. Jesus listens to their grand vision of all things and says, you've only seen a fraction of it. And he says, it sounds a little bit harsh to us, I think, but trust me when I say it's, it's a, out of a place of love and a desire to lead them into all truth that Jesus says to them, how foolish you are, or foolish ones, how slow of heart you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken about me. Jesus wants them to truly see. And so in order to help them to truly see, he hides himself. He hides himself because he's not satisfied with them simply recognizing the truth that he's risen from the dead. He wants them to have this fuller and grander scheme of things, this fuller and grander vision of who he is and what he's accomplished. He wants to help lead them into the whole truth. And he does that by opening up the scriptures. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interprets to them all the scriptures uh, and in those scriptures the things concerning himself. It's a shorthand way of, of sort of what we would call the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writings, all of which find their fulfillment, find their uh, center in Jesus. And he helps them to see in so many places and so many ways that their hopes, though good, were just a fraction of the truth. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And we read that and we think, well, yes, come on, that's what they've missed, isn't it? They had these expectations of one who was going to come um, a new David who was going to defeat the Goliath of Rome and restore the fortunes of the people in the place with God's presence. But they'd missed the fact that there was a suffering servant mentioned in Isaiah, hadn't they? They'd missed the fact that that was to be done through dying and rising to life again. Yes, that's what they needed to know. They needed to have that sense filled out that this is more than just about an ethnicity, a, a people group being restored to power in a certain land. It's about reconciling man and God, sinners and a holy God. There had to be death at the center of it. Surely what Jesus did was take them to places like the Passover lamb and the, 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 the goats on the day of atonement and other things like that. The whole sacrificial system and show them this is the picture of the Messiah too. The one who has come to put things all right. Of course he shared those things with them. Of course, I think he would have gone through and highlighted the things that they'd already seen and noticed that meant that they had this hope that the Messiah would restore the nation of Israel. But you know, I fancy that Jesus showed them an awful lot more than that too. Jesus showed them all about himself, all that he was and is and was doing and will do. That the Christ, the Messiah, would have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory. I have a fear for us as a church in Ammonford. I'm going to project that fear onto you, that just like these friends on the road to Emmaus, 
we've got a grand scheme of who Christ is, what Christ is doing, and it is not nearly grand enough. We have seen the truth that Jesus has risen from the dead. He's been revealed to our eyes, but we've lost the fuller picture of who he is. I love the description of what happens to these friends of his as he takes them through the scriptures, as they see Jesus and what he's all about. They say at the end, didn't our hearts burn within us as we were there on the road listening to him? We see things about Jesus. We hear good news claims about Jesus, that he has come for the forgiveness of sins, that he's come so that we need no longer be strangers and aliens and enemies of God, but be friends adopted in, that he has come to begin the good work of putting all things right. We hear good news and we respond with worship. I fear for us in Amford, like I say, and projecting on you guys as well, that we're satisfied too easily with the sliver of Jesus that we have. Jesus wants us, as he wanted them, to enter into all truth. I've been preparing this last week or two in the book of Ephesians. As a church, we have home groups, and for the next term or so, we're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus and the churches around that place and it starts off with this really famous prayer of praise and as you work your way through it it's a little bit complicated it's a it's a long single sentence prayer of praise about the wonderful things that God has done praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in every in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing and then it pours out and it pours out it's this wonderful thing of praise and there are portions of it that we pick out and we think yes amen that's true yes amen that's true it speaks about adoption it speaks about grace it speaks about redemption and blood and forgiveness but it has this point this center which speaks about the purpose of everything that Jesus was doing the purpose of the redemption of Jews and Gentiles alike, why it is that Christ was coming and graciously living and dying and rising, why forgiveness was on offer. And it says this, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. He's got a similar statement and a similar sort of opening to the letter to the Galatians. Through Jesus Christ, Paul says, God the Father was reconciling to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, none of us would sit here, none of us would stand here and say we don't believe in that. But if we were to try and articulate what our hope is, as those friends did on the way to Emmaus, I wonder whether it would capture the fullness of what Paul saw a forgiven people who were part of something more. A Christ who wasn't just a saviour of individuals, but was at work reconciling all things in heaven and on earth through his blood. We satisfy ourselves with too small, even if we consider it grand, a picture of Jesus and what he's about. But Jesus desires us to know why. That is why Jesus hid himself and when they heard when they saw when they grasped 
a greater scheme, a greater vision of who Jesus was. Let's not try and force onto it any sort of articulation of, of what it is that they grasped in that moment. But the doors were blown off. Their hearts burned within them. And they were changed by that. They were changed by that. Verse 28, as they drew near to the village, Jesus made as if he was traveling on, but they urged him strongly to come in, to stay with them. They wanted to show hospitality to Jesus in this moment. One of the things that I like to do is to, to sit and to contemplate, to muse on the emotions of various people in certain circumstances in, in the stories in the Gospels. We were doing it the other week with the women who quickly made their way to the tomb um, in order to, pre to prepare Jesus' body for burial, just to think, well, here are these women who couldn't do what they wanted to do to pay their respect, to show their love to Jesus on the Friday. They'd had to wait all day Saturday, and they were willing to go at the break of dawn at first light to do what was necessary on the Sunday. What was the thing in their hearts that they wanted to do was to practically love Jesus in whatever way they could. In my imagination, if nowhere else, these followers of Jesus, it's again the same Sunday. What is the first thing that they're going to do? I feel like they're fleeing. I feel like they're running. I feel like it's, it's really hot to be a follower of Jesus in Jerusalem. Peter has been denying knowing Jesus. These guys are hot-tailing it out. And yet, something has happened in them, something has changed them, that they want to show hospitality to this stranger. Maybe it's because they liked the things that he was saying, but I think they're truly being changed as they saw the truth, as they understood the scope of what Jesus was about. They were affected by it. Hospitality is the hallmark of someone who has come to have that fuller faith in Jesus. In the letter to the Hebrews, it says this, keep on loving one another, as brothers and sisters, do not forget to show hospitality even to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Here, this pair, having grasped something new about the grandeur of Jesus and what he is doing, are moved to show love and kindness to this stranger, even in a dangerous situation. They show hospitality, and they don't entertain just angels, messengers of the Most High God. They entertain the risen Lord. That's marvelous, isn't it? That when they see, even without seeing Jesus, they're changed, they're transformed by him. Over dinner, their eyes are opened. We could have debates over how it was that Jesus hid himself. Was it miraculous? Was it mechanical? Did he sort of supernaturally make it so that they didn't recognize him? Or did he just have a hood and a scarf? I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters because I think the reverse works just as well. That he either miraculously opened their eyes or he comes in and he sits down and he breaks bread and he takes his scarf and his hood off and they see as he hands them the bread, the scars, however it is. They see him. They recognize him. And that hope which had been dashed at the start of the story, had been enlarged through what they learnt, and is now being secured, fulfilled, relit, re if you like, in their lives. And just not one more thing before moving on to a few thoughts of application. 
that when Jesus then left them and they moved to go and tell the other disciples about it. Verse 35, what is it that they tell the disciples? Again, we'd quite well imagine that the first thing that they'd want to say, the first thing that they'd want to share is, it's not nonsense what the women told us. The tomb is definitely empty because we've just seen the risen Lord Jesus. And they, they do say that because obviously it's quite a remarkable thing that they've done when they recognize who he is. But verse 35, they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. They told what had happened on the road. How this stranger had opened up the scriptures and, and told them basically, you've seen something of who this Jesus was and what he was about, but there is so much more to it. They're desperate to tell their friends, their fellow disciples, this fuller, grander vision that they have of Jesus. So just a few sort of closing thoughts about like how we respond to that. Other than being gladdened by the fact that Jesus wants us to know the full picture. I mean, that should be enough for us this evening, shouldn't it? Just to think that Jesus isn't satisfied with us seeing in part. That God has always been a God who reveals in ever-increasing degrees to his people who he is and what he's about. He desires that we not remain in ignorance but move into a fuller knowledge and understanding, appreciation and relationship with him. More than that, which is plenty enough, what are some of the things that we can just think about in terms of us responding? Well, the first, slightly random, but... I love the fact that these two followers, at least in my imagination, running away from Jerusalem because they're scared, certainly not knowing everything that's going on, still had Jesus on their lips. They still were speaking to one another about him. And I was thinking how, how comfortable we are as Christians in certain strategic places, in certain set times to speak and to think about Jesus. But does he fill our minds and our hearts and, and is he on our lips just as we're wandering from place to place? I think we do well to make their habit our habit of just speaking about Jesus to one another. Whether we know all of the facts or not, whether we think we're people who have the information to inform and transform the person that we're speaking or not, or whether we're just people who have questions, people who have thoughts, people who are trying to grapple with this weighty one who is in front of us. They had this habit of speaking about him informally as they went. I think that would be a wonderful habit for us to rediscover as a church. That's the first thing that perhaps we can do to respond. Not just in our set times, in our strategic times, in our safe times, but perhaps when we're full of fear, when we recognize our own ignorance, still to be a people who speak to each other about Jesus. Secondly, I'd say, and this isn't from their example, this is just from seeing how Jesus treats them, why he hides himself, because he wants to lead them into the why, Not to be a people who speak about Jesus and a people who seek Jesus more and more, who aren't willing to settle for that sliver of Jesus that we already have, 
that we say that we believe in the good news, but desire to hear and understand the great news, who understand Jesus to be a wonderful saviour, but seek to, to, to move into a fuller comprehension of how he's an indescribable saviour. I'm not speaking about switching the pool that we're swimming in, but moving further from the edge and diving deeper in. We're moved to praise, we're moved to worship, we're moved to obedience when we see who Jesus is. And I believe that we should have this sort of restless state always as his followers that we want to know him more. Don't leave it to chance. Make deepening your relationship and your knowledge with Jesus a priority. First, speak about him. Second, seek him. Thirdly, let him shine a light on the scriptures for you. There's always been an odd relationship, I think, between the Old and the New Testament and in how we view them together, their usefulness. Very often we kind of think that perhaps the New Testament is where we will go to meet Jesus, to understand Jesus, to the gospel. You want to introduce someone to Jesus, explain to them who Jesus is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, wherever it is. Take them to the stories of his ministry um, for three years, his death, his resurrection. That's how they'll see, that's how they'll encounter, that's how they'll understand. And yet what do we find when we come to the Gospels? Well, they are heavily drenched in Moses and the prophets and the writings. Truth is, you can't really understand what on earth Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John are going on about unless you fully understand the scriptures that they're constantly referring to. Um, as, a, as an example, Mark begins, doesn't he? The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and immediately quotes from various prophets. The, the New Testament, I would say, is a dark, dark place unless we understand the Old Testament. And here Jesus is showing that the Old Testament is a dark, dark place unless we've understood the New Testament. So seek that Christ would be shining a light through both Testaments. Speak about him, seek him, have that Christ-centered light shining on both Testaments, the whole Scriptures. J.C. Ryle put it like this, once we lose sight of Christ in our Scriptures, we will find the whole Bible dark and full of difficulty. And I think that, I think that means, I think that means when we've only got such a small view of Christ, and we're searching for that view of Christ to be buttressed up or reaffirmed constantly in all places. There will be passages, there will be stories, there will be arcs and themes that make no sense to us because they don't align with the Jesus we are expecting to meet. And to have this desire for a fuller sense and to search for Jesus wherever we are. And the last thing, the last encouragement I would give us is this. As we seek to go deeper with Jesus, speaking about him, searching for him, shining a light in the old and the new, it would be to invite Christ to help us to see, to call on the helper that he has promised, who is instructed to lead us into all truth. I'm 
pretty confident in my own intellectual capabilities. I fancy myself as quite an intelligent human being. And I can quite easily fall into the trap of thinking that as long as I've got a Bible and a biro, I can figure it out. I just don't think that's true. Even if it is true to a degree, it needn't be true. Because it was Jesus who drew alongside these boys and helped them to see more fully how great and how grand he is. Jesus who has promised to send the Spirit to be at work in us to help lead us into all truth. I think we should be inviting Christ by his spirit to help us to see more of him. Sometimes we lack confidence when we pray because we don't know whether God desires the same things we do. Can I give you a prayer that God is absolutely going to answer because it is 100% his will. Father, help me to see your son. Help me to know him, help me to love him, help me to live for him. When we invite Christ by the Spirit to help illuminate the scriptures to us, that is a prayer that he answers. So let's speak about Jesus with one another. Let's um, strive for more of Jesus and a greater understanding of who he is and what he has done in all of the scriptures as he, as he shines a light on them. And invite the Spirit to help us to come and to understand. Because Jesus wants us to know who he is and why he came and did what he did.